Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and t shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Did you know that I'm back doing another live show? Yes, I know. It's been a while, hasn't it? It's called The Stalker and I share investigations where I learned probably a little too much about that murky world. The show is on Saturday, the 25th of February at the State Library of Victoria. Tickets are through Eventbrite. Hello, and I trust 2023 will be a good year for us all. In my 27 years as a Victorian policewoman, I investigated everything from a stolen bicycle to a stolen life. Policing taught me a lot about human nature, which I explore in my podcasts with a variety of fascinating guests discussing the human side and impact of crime, not only on their lives, but mine as well. My podcasts are not suitable for children and some adults for that matter. If you find yourself affected by my subject matter, please contact Lifeline or any other support, service or person that you feel comfortable with. Thank you. I remember at the time I had a good working relationship with one of the detectives and they were, Nick, we've got him. We've bloody got him. In 2015, Nikki finished her last shift in Queensland Police after 21 years of service to the community. The last 16 years of her 21 years, she spent in forensics, where attending so many major crime scenes wore her out, both physically and mentally. So you'd think Nikki might take it a bit easy and do something a little less stressful, wouldn't you? But no. Obviously, stress is a magnet to Nikki, or maybe it's the adrenaline that she missed or didn't realise that she needed. After leaving the job, nearly every police person I know, myself included, we have trouble identifying and or realising our transferable skills. And often, we don't think we've got any to share. And Nikki was no different. Who else needs a person who can do an extradition, who can write up an op order, who can interview a witness, a suspect or a victim? Who who can examine a crime scene? Who else needs these type of skills? We can sometimes think that because we've done the same job for so long, sometimes making hundreds of decisions in a shift, some of them split second, some of them life-threatening, we actually come to believe that it's normal, but it's far from it. We leave the job doubting ourselves and our abilities, but it isn't until you start seeking other career opportunities, you begin to think maybe, even acknowledge, that maybe the skills and abilities that we've learned, practised and retained during all those years of policing are transferable and they can be of benefit 
in a new career. Nikki now works in the casual, no-stress, idyllic, calm, dreamy, peaceful world of operating theatres and ICU, operating cardiac machines, including the heart-lung bypass machine, making sure the patient remains alive during sometimes life-threatening procedures. Can you believe that? (laughs) We've got a bit to cover today, so it's probably going to be at least a two-parter. We'll go into some well-known murder investigations that Nikki was part of in her role as a forensic crime scene specialist and about some of the issues she faced which led her to leave policing, some of which will have you shaking your head in disbelief (laughs) like mine was. Nikki's policing career sent her very close to the edge, but she found a new purpose in life and is so much stronger mentally, and she relishes in the fact that she's still making a difference in her role as a clinical perfusionist. Yes, I've got no idea either, but we'll ask Nikki later. Uh, Nikki will tell us how that role has continued her love of helping and caring for people, which is obviously in her DNA. Although in her new career, she literally is the difference between someone living and dying. What a huge responsibility. Although I'm tending to think that she may dismiss that as all part and parcel of her job and she takes it all in her stride. So thanks for joining us, Nikki, and for everything you do and done in the past for the community in those in such dire situations. So thanks. Thanks, Narelle. Thanks we finally got to catch up. (laughs) We did. And, you know, I I said to you before, I am a dill of the highest level (laughs) because this morning I've put something on Facebook, just a lovely little photo, and, of course, I forgot about doing this. So now I've got all these um, uh, acknowledgements saying, oh, what a beautiful photo, whatever, and I don't know how to stop it. So can everyone please bear with me? And I do (laughs) apologise. It was a nice photo, by the way. Oh, it was beautiful. I went for a a walk around Lake Waruna in Bendigo here and, oh, it was so beautiful. And then I see these swans and these beautiful little cygnets. Oh, I just had to take it. But, of course, you know. Is it hot there again today? Oh, thank God, no. It was 30... 39 here yesterday. Yeah. That's a hot day. Yeah, but you were down day. the beach or something yesterday, weren't no, you? No, I went and saw um, a play called um, Six about King Henry VIII and his six wives. It was excellent. So I thoroughly recommend it to anybody if they get a chance to go and that's see a it. Busy, that's, a, that's a busy life, six lives, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> six wives. Uh, six wives. Six so, wives. Sorry, yeah. So it was, yes, yeah, six wives, Henry VIII, very well known mm. for being a bit of a, yeah, Love of the ladies, yeah, King Henry. Yes, but I, I don't think that was such an unusual uh, thing in the in those days to no. have a number of wives, was it? Like these no, that's days, right. it, mm, yeah, yep. have yes, a mistress no, and, or two. Yes, God, it, it's yes. so frowned upon these days, yes. isn't it? Or yeah. it's just not accept. It's just no. not acceptable. That's right. But um, very, I thoroughly recommend it if anybody needs. If anybody wants to go and see it, it's called Six. Oh, okay. Uh, mm. For six lots, six wives. Um, yep. I'm going. I'm looking forward to my sister. Uh, one of my sisters bought me a ticket to Sting. Uh, yeah, which I'm really looking forward to. That but would be good. Also, yeah, yeah. But also, there's uh, a new movie out about 
uh, Whitney Houston, who is oh, just yeah. my favourite of, of all time. That's supposed to be good, so, actually. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I can't wait. I can't wait. Mm. Anyway, I suppose we'd better get on with uh, we what we're coming. It's been a long <laughs> no time wonder coming. It's gonna be, <laughs> it has. And no wonder it's going to be more than a two-part. Oh, my goodness, we haven't even I got it. Um, yeah, we have. We have. But um, I do know, uh, just to be serious for a minute, I do know everyone listening will share with me in passing on our sincere condolences, thoughts and prayers to everyone in Queensland, but particularly your former colleagues who yeah. were impacted by the recent tragic uh, random shootings up there. Not only were police shot and killed, your colleagues or former colleagues, but a very brave neighbour as well, trying to help our blue brothers and sisters. So there must be so much grief and sadness up there. Yeah, yeah. It's affected mm. everybody, I think, and, and everybody... Uh, non-police included. So even people mm. at who I work with now currently who know I'm ex-police have even said things mm. to me like, oh, you know, that's really sad. So it's even just affecting members of the community as well as police around the nation and overseas as well. Mm. But, yeah, yeah, you just, yeah, you just can't fathom it. No, you can't. And I know every police person who's ever worked on the front line at some time in their career, they would have gone to a seemingly innocuous incident like uh, exactly. your former colleagues went. Yes. And, uh, you know, it could have easily, for most of us, turned uh, turned fatal like it did up there. So anyway, you're all in our thoughts and we hope. Yes, and, thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. right. And it's good to uh, see the public actually backing police again, which is a really nice thing because, you know, we... As police, we go through our ups and downs where the community absolutely hate us. Then they love us, then they hate us. And, I mean, that's one yeah. of the challenging parts of being a police officer is is, is the hatred mm. that the community can throw at you at, at sometimes. Um, mm. So, yeah, it's nice yeah. to have them back on our side again. Yeah, it is. And then uh, just uh, in the last day or so, I keep hearing about police that um, – end their lives because they can't deal with the, the trauma and the That's right. and the grief and whatever. There's so much going on, but we've oh, just yes. recently in the last day lost another policeman. Oh, no, I saw that on Facebook oh, actually. Yeah. That was New South Wales, wasn't it? No, it was here in Victoria. Victoria. Yeah. I mean, it, it's happening and it's not just Victoria, obviously, but, yeah. again, yeah. my heart, go, our hearts, Nikki and my, yes. myself, everybody, it yes. goes out to everybody that's struggling. Yes. And, again, it's just so important to say to people to talk to somebody, yes. please don't, uh, you know, that's just right. got to get over that. It's that just little such heart, a tough job, you? isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yep. Oh, it is, Nikki. Yeah, it is. Um so in um, moving on to our interview yes. today, there were yes. there's so many questions that I want to ask. Um, I'm full of so much information <laughs> and stories. <laughs> you have. You have. I have. Um, and the, the following isn't so much a question as yes, a statement okay. to start okay. off with, but I thought I'd share with the listeners an amusing part in a way of our discussions in readiness for today. And I wanted to read yes. out your email to me, which I received only a few days after I thought I'd sort of got everything together and I've <laughs> sent you the draft introduction, yeah. uh, I've sent you a few questions, we've had a number of chats and then I yes. get this email from Nikki and I'm sure I've, I've checked with Nikki and Nikki doesn't mind me saying this. No. So here we go. This is the email. 
I forgot to tell you in all of our chats that my health during all this wasn't good. When I left policing, it improved. However, in 2017, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I had a double mastectomy and radiation. I have had no reconstruction as I have lots of complications and I'm too thin, particularly my skin and chest. I've had about five or six operations around this. I've got no family history of breast cancer, so I wonder if it's caused by stress. Who knows? Mm. A professor I saw said, who knows also? And you could never prove if it was chemicals used at crime scenes or the copious amounts of stress I was put under. Seriously, mm-hmm. Nikki, mm. you just happened to forget to tell me that you've had a, a double mastectomy. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So how are you these days? I'm, pretty, I'm good. It's five years for me, so I'm still good, still getting checkups um, and in good health. So um, everyone's happy, my oncologist and my treating doctors. I'm just going to have one more lot of surgery to my chest to free up some scar tissue um, beginning of March. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I'm healthy and that's, I guess, the main outcome of all of this. Um, my mm-hmm. boobs tried to kill me, as they like to say. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, I'm good. I'm good. A lot better. So, yeah. so which is great news and that's, yeah, uh, yeah that it's a relief. But so... On that, what is your gut feeling about the possibility of chemicals contributing to your diagnosis? Oh, that, look, you're, uh, yeah. you'd never be able to to prove anything. So you know what crime scenes, and a lot of your listeners would know, we use uh, chemicals like luminol to look for blood, leucocrystal violet to look to enhance shoe impressions and blood patterns. Um, you know, acid phosphatase to look for seminal fluid. I went to copious amounts of fires, um, breathing in all the, the, the residue from fires and, you know, you just you just never know. So, uh, you know, early on in the day we didn't really take as many precautions as we did towards the end there in terms of PPE. So, I mean, you just never know and you could never prove it. Um, mm. So I just want everyone to, yeah, check your boobs uh, and age is no factor. I was 36 at my first precancerous lumpectomies and then 43 when I had my double mastectomy. So um, I think if you're, if, you're under, if you're 40, start getting those checks done. Um, but, yeah, I think it could also be a combination of everything together, like that Swiss cheese effect, you know, all the holes line up and yeah, yeah. Um, having the dense breast tissue as well um, could be the other thing to add in there. So, yeah, no real known cause. Everyone just sort of goes, hmm, I don't know. So, yeah. It'd be not, it, it would be nice if we could find a cause, and not just for breast cancer, for yes. cancer because it's just uh, it's just so prevalent. It's too prevalent. And like you say, it doesn't matter about age either. You can get it as a, a young child. That's uh, right. To- that's right. And there's lots of young women being diagnosed with colon cancer and and lung cancer and those sorts of things. So we do really need to sort of, I guess, if something doesn't feel right, then perhaps just go to the GP and, and mm. just ask some questions. Mm-hmm. So so now that we've got that small point out of the way uh, and just putting us at a side, yeah, right? I yes, mean, yes, yeah. as I do every day, Impossible. yes. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I try to. So, <laughs> I bet you do. So 
Can you tell the listeners what the role of a police crime scene specialist is and what qualifications you need to perform that role? Because I think it's becoming very, very a popular career, like forensics. Very much um, so. Scenes. Yes. Yeah, so, and there might be some, uh, you know, young people out there that are thinking about what they want to do. So what quals do you need? And just tell us a bit about the role, if you could. Okay, yep. So in Queensland, I think each state, it might be a little bit different in terms of how they function. I know that uh, some New South Wales police weren't sworn forensic officers, but in Queensland, you had to be a sworn police officer, um, and then you had to wait for a vacancy in the scientific unit, as it's called. Um, and then we, uh, you had to have a Bachelor of Science degree as a minimum. And then once I was in the section uh, in 99, I started a Masters of Forensic Science, which was run by Griffith Uni at that time. Um, and so that was a postgraduate course there that we did over two years part-time, uh, finishing off with a, um, like a, a Masters thesis that we had to present, um, and I did mine on uh, a murder that happened um, back in the early 90s, um, and it talked about the first use of DNA and a conviction on DNA the first time round, um, and just how they caught the killer and that kind of thing, obviously with DNA. Um, so that that sort of is the qualifications you needed. Um in Queensland, we sort of divided into two units at the time. It was ballistics unit and major crime unit. So major crime unit, we did all the major crimes. So we did homicides, rapes, uh, arson, um, you know, any of those sort of uh, major events. So all the minor events such as your break-in and as your willful damages, all that was done by the scenes of crime officers and we were called yeah. scientific officers. So we were the ones that that did the more advanced stuff. So the psychos would go there first, ascertain that, you know, there's bloodstain patterns there, we're looking for certain other bits and pieces as a dead body, and then they would call us in sort of thing. And so we would sort of travel. There's a few of us around the state, but if other, if other areas needed help, we would go and help them from Brisbane, so I was based in Brisbane, or we would do sort of up to about uh, Bundaberg, Jinjin sort of area because Rocky would sort of come south from there. So we would sort of do there and, and right out west um, to Woomba, uh, Longreach, Katamala, sort of places like that, um, and then down to sort of meet up with the Gold Coast, so around Logan, that area. Um, and then obviously if anyone needed any assistance, we would go. I did lots of jobs in Rocky and, and a job in Mackay here and there. So um, just help out when needed. Okay. And and with all the crime scenes that you've obviously attended, and we will go into a, a couple shortly, but have you ever felt squirmish at a crime um, scene? Has anything ever affected you like that? Yeah, look, uh, you have to have a pretty strong stomach, I think. Um, I, the thing that I hated the most was obviously decomposing dead bodies um, that smell, you never get out of your nostril hairs. Um, my own hair, I used really long hair, and I used to have to wash my hair three or four times to get the smell out of my hair. Um, I used to catch a train home initially, and I would sit on the train thinking, oh, my God, I've just been to a dead, stinky body. I wonder if anybody around me can smell me. 
I was sitting there thinking that it was my hair, right, because I would have a shower when I got back maybe but didn't wash my hair or anything. And so you'd be a bit concerned catching the train home thinking, oh, God, what's thing? Probably the worst thing for me was picking maggots out of soupy dead bodies. Sorry if that's gross mm. to everybody, but um, that was probably yes. my worst thing and moving and moving deceased that are decomposing because you just don't know what might happen. So um, <laughs> that were probably the I'm worst not, two things. I'm, I'm thinking I might put a, um, <laughs> a warning at the start. <laughs> I think it probably should. <laughs> it doesn't be large. <laughs> yeah. The other thing that I don't really like is anything surrounding eyes. So anything for me, so if someone was stabbed in the eye or I was scooped out or something like that, that would just, it just used to make me, oh, just feel just awful. So. And, and so how, how would you deal with that? If you've got a crime scene where you have had somebody stabbed in the eye, for instance, or yep, whatever, yep, yep. would you still... You'd have to do it, wouldn't you? Like you couldn't yes. say, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. So you'd sort of take a breath and you'd go, rightio, okay, this has got to be done. I'm here to do this. It won't take long. So I used to get myself all prepared as to if I needed to do anything, have it all ready to go and then just do what I had to do, hold my breath, do whatever and sort of that's it, done. And just say to myself, I'm doing this for them. I'm not doing this for me. So that was sort of the way I, I sort of looked at it, I think. And, you know, and it goes against everything that we sort of want as humans. We don't want to go into situations that we don't like. So you're constantly pushing back against those situations. As you do in policing, we run towards danger. We don't run from it. So that's, right. this, that's the sort of thing that you find is you having to push yourself which is why I think, you know, later on down the track we can have issues because we're going into areas that our body says, look, I'm not really comfortable with this, but mm. it has to be done. So, yeah, that was just sort of, I guess, the way we looked at it. And I justified it by saying I'm doing this for the victim, I'm doing this for the victim's family and that kind of yes. thing. And it's not about but, me. But you are. No, uh, that's true, that's but you right. are doing it. You're doing it for uh, the community so that, uh, well, the, the system, the justice system, just so that we can find out what happened, why it happened, who did it, and if we didn't have people like yourself, we would never have people, can, you know, uh, uh, front court. So, yeah, that's But you, right. must be, you must be able to, I think as police, we've got to be able to compartmentalise what we're doing and I, I think uh, towards the end I found it very hard to compartmentalise. It wasn't my strong point. Yeah, uh, okay. What and, and what about you with compartmentalising I'm, I'm things? I'm very good. I have little boxes that I put things in um, yeah. and they go into the little box and I find I'm okay with a lot of the work situations. For me, I found the issues for me were surrounding management and personality and um, people, uh, people's hidden agendas or people's agendas in within policing and, you know, all those sort of socio-impacts. That was more my thing was the frustration around people wanting to be better than others, stepping all over others, you know, claiming others' work as their own and, and you know, all those things which I'm sure the listeners can certainly attest to happens a lot 
because of that hierarchical structure that goes on within police services themselves. Um, I found, yeah, that was my issues and that was the reason why I left them and I will talk about that. But um, I did need a break from the jobs because there was a lot of work involved, particularly in a big homicide. Um, but I tend to find I could put the bad things in little boxes and they could stay in, in there. And also talking with your workmates about, oh, I just saw, you know, that black humour that us police have is amazing. And I think it keeps us going. And just to say, oh, you know, like, um, oh, I saw this person's eye dug out, you know, and then jokes coming out about about eyes and then maybe six months down the track your workmate will, will play a prank on you with an eye sitting on a pen or, or something like that. And, and that's sort of, I think, the way we sort of cope with a lot of that sort of stuff that we see. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that black humour sort of. Oh, definitely. Uh, I haven't heard of uh, somebody playing a prank with an eye <laughs> on your desk. I must admit that's well, a Well, you first. know, like a fake eye, like a, a printed, you know, like a printed out um, oh, thank piece God of for paper. That. I thought you meant, oh, or, oh, God, no. Oh, no, nothing real. <laughs> oh, you know, right. just little things like that. Like you open up your, your crime scene kit and there's a picture of of yeah, something, yeah. you know, and and it's all very fun and games and, you know, you're searching through your kit looking for something and here pops this something out and you go, yeah, well played, guys, well yeah, played. Yeah. <laughs> no, but, but I do agree and I think that and that's why I feel we used to be able to have a drink after work uh, yes, in the office. Very much used so. To be able Yep, and we used to be able to, that was our where all the black humour came out because we knew uh, that we were safe, that nobody would hear the very offensive things we were talking about. But as you say, it was just a way to deal with it. But, it was, uh, definitely. That, that was, yep, and that was stopped. And so, and, and I'm not saying that alcohol is uh, a, a way of, it, it was a way that we debriefed, not the only way, but I feel whether it was alcohol or whether it was sitting around having a cup of coffee in the office, at least we knew that we were safe. But that black humour is what I feel people could um, just, uh, that was a, a part of our debriefing uh, system, uh, the way we debriefed. And, of course, now the only place you can do that is if you do want to drink, you go to a pub. So you've got to find somewhere quiet. That's right. You don't want people to overhear. Yeah. That's right. No, no. So, look, I, I do understand the black humour and I think anybody that works in uh, emergency services or frontline, they they would understand that. Oh, the Ambers um, all have it. They're, like, they're amazing as well. Like, um, Yeah, yeah. You know, and your workmates, when you have a few really good workmates in a good team, like I had for a very long time there before, um, some other certain people came along within the team that sort of changed things up. But, you know, we had a very good work team there for a while where we could rely on each other. We had each other's yes. backs. And, and we had each other's trust. We had each other's trust and we knew that that we could talk to each other about anything and I think that's that's very important um, in, the, in policing in particular. Yeah, it is. You feel like um, you belong so in the team, yeah. Oh, very much so. There's... Yeah. There's nothing, there's nothing quite like it and I think it's very hard for anybody who hasn't been in that 
uh, field to understand the the closeness that you have with working with somebody and seeing just some of the most terrible things. It's like, you know, when with the listeners, when you you watch something, you see something and everybody holds each other's hand to, you know, maybe a really bad car accident or something. And it's like that from that time on, you joined at the hip because you've experienced something so, uh, so traumatic. Police do that every day. And that's why you are so often almost joined at the hip. Like you, you never forget those colleagues that you've been to a terrible incident with. That's right. No, no. And still today, I still keep in contact with my best friends from um, the scientific days and previous um, units that I worked in um, because, you know, we all do the dreadful stuff that members of the community don't ever see in their lifetime, some of them. So, Mm. you know, and I know every police person um, could talk about this, but I. Uh, was involved in a, a terrible incident where a young woman doused herself with petrol, mm, and she yeah. and she ended up dying. But I, the the young policeman that I was with, I can remember we held hands in the div van on the way back. It was just so traumatic, and to this day, he's still on Facebook, and I might, uh, you know, yeah. we might converse. But I still feel enormous warmth, uh, almost love for this young man because of what we've gone through. So, yeah, anyway, yes, oh, it makes me feel so, uh, I that's what I miss. You know, and that's I miss what I miss that, too, that, that yeah, comradeship. Yeah. Um, and, and I find, like when we talk about transferable skills, just uh, quickly, uh, we had a patient uh, where I work now who uh, required urgent CPR. He crashed on the ward basically. Uh, he came up to theatres and I ended up getting involved um, because it was an emergency. Now, the young physiotherapist that was dealing with him at the time that he ended up crashing and needing CPR, she was beside herself. So um, I made sure that I went to the senior physio and said to him, if you want, I can speak to this young physio and talk to her about what happened, but I think she needs to speak to the doctor to find out that she did nothing wrong, everything she did was right, and that these things happen. So this is, is a transferable skill that us as police have. We realise, holy heck, that's a big incident for somebody who's 28 or 25 or whatever she was, she's young, to deal with, and, and we can understand that. So, again, these are these skills that we have as police that we can say, well, hang on a sec, I recognise that's traumatic and let's take care of the people that were surrounding that and, you know, have a chat, which is what we're good at as police is having a chat. Yes. In fact, I was known, uh, speaking of that, I was known as uh, Yapper. That was one of my uh, <laughs> many names, which may surprise a lot of people. Hey, hey you, talk to us about, you talk to us about those squirmish those uh, things that made you feel squirmish at a scene. What was it that you loved about forensic, uh, forensics and examining crime okay. scenes? Um, I like to look through people's stuff. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and every police officer who does searches and stuff like that, yourself included, 
would, would, yes. we could tell stories about what we found in people's houses and drawers and bits and pieces. Oh, so, yes, yeah. You know, so we all like to look through people's stuff. Um, but I also guess, <laughs> also guess, you know, it's a puzzle that needs solving, right? So yeah, yeah. I like to work through a problem and try and solve it. So um, I guess you're starting and you're working towards what happened here, you know, and then collecting clues, so be it, um, for want of a better word, as to how things happened and trying to piece together a story so that you can give that to the detectives who can then, uh, you know, try and work out from there who might have been involved in that kind of thing. So, yeah, I guess that was what I, I thought I liked and using chemicals and looking for things and just... Yeah, that kind of thing, I guess. Mm. Yeah, I, I completely get that and it's probably something that I'd prefer not to admit, but I, I you're right about going through people's stuff. I've always said that policing was a sticky beak's paradise. Yes, definitely. It yeah, yep. yeah, it's a, it's a paradise for us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And making sure um, you have good undies on when they, you know when you go out of the house, you've got to make sure you've got good good knickers on, good undies on. Oh, that is so true. <laughs> How often did our mums say to us, "You've got to have on good knickers just in, in case you're in an accident"? <laughs> I know because um, now there's a funny story. Um, I went to a a job and. Um, I mean, it was it's not funny, and I, I don't know. I hope no one takes offence to this because it, it certainly isn't funny. Um, yeah. But again, it's just a testament. Okay, it's an attest to our black humour. So, yes. uh, unfortunately, a lady went out on a date, and she was sexually assaulted um, on this date. Now, there was some talk about it being a false complaint by this lady, and that she was just sort of making it up. So, you know, and that she wanted this guy to do some things to her, but then she withdrew consent, kind of thing, and. And I was like, oh, you know, I don't think we should think like that. So um, we had to go around to her house because she was in hospital and examine her house. So I went around to her house and I found the clothes that she had on at the time. So I pulled up this big pair of granny knickers, right, that she had been wearing at the time. And I said to the scenes of the photographer at the time, no one's going to wear these knickers if they think they're going to get lucky tonight. Absolutely. So, yeah. So I, I, could not I hope nobody takes offence to that. But that was a funny moment where we thought she she certainly didn't go out with a plan in mind for this to happen because she had the granny knickers there. So she was wearing the granny knickers. So oh, no. and, and you know what that that would be uh, that would be a sign to me. Absolutely, I, I would think exactly the same thing. Yeah, yeah. yeah, and unfortunately everything turned out well and she was okay and the guy did get charged and um, things did happen. But that was just a funny moment that the photographer, yes. actually that I still keep in contact with, we're both letter keepers now, he likes to remind yeah. me of every now and again. He recounts that as one of the funniest things he's, he's ever done. <laughs> 
If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact. You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs> I'm glad I made his day, and he still talks and, about it. <laughs> and just as a matter of interest, did yes. did he did he agree with you? Like, is that something he thought of, or yeah. did you? Well, he didn't. I think it was a female perspective, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, yeah, that's what yeah. I'm thinking. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and he sort of said, "I think you're right, Nick." Like once I said, he's like, "I think you're right." Yeah, and then, yeah, so true. all, yeah, you know, so all laughter broke loose, so, yeah. <laughs> Sorry yeah. if I offend anybody <laughs> by that, but <laughs> I'm sure some of you will agree with me. <laughs> oh, I, think, I know all police would agree with you. And, yeah, and so definitely. Are there, any, are there any crime scenes that you've attended where you think you've worked out who it is by the time you leave? Uh, yeah, um, I think yeah, we also we all have a lot of those what we call walk-ups, right, where we, where we know. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You know, we know it's the husband or we know it's the boyfriend, but we just need to find, uh, we just need to cover all bases basically to, to, to say that we're not honing in on one person. So obviously these day and age we take DNA from everywhere to make sure that it's we're not getting a third party and all that kind of stuff. Um, but, yeah, I would say numerous crime scenes, numerous, numerous. You know, it is generally somebody they know. It's very rare 
that yeah. uh, these homicides in particular are somebody that you don't know. So um, quite often there'd be a few, you know, as as you went on examining the scene, the detectives could bring you more information and it's like, okay, we want you to look at this or that or whatever. Um, so, yeah, numerous. Is there a crime scene you've attended which uh, on the opposite side has completely stumped you or surprised you for some yeah, reason? Yeah, yeah. Daniel Morecambe was one. Um where that was just a total unknown um, and there was just so many red herrings being thrown um, throughout the whole time um, that that was happening. Um, and I'm sure there's probably others um, where, at, you know, at the time you're examining the scene, you don't know who it is, but then, you know, by the sheer goodwill of the detectives and the good groundwork, they'll come up a narrow field down, you know, a week or so down the track and go, hey, we, we, we think it's this person and then by the time you get DNA results back, quite often you can say yes or no or, or whatever. Mm. So, Actually, yeah. could we could we um, talk about Daniel Morecambe yes, uh, a bit more? Yes. Because uh, I know a lot of people out there will have heard of uh, the Daniel Morecambe case and know a little bit about it, but you were actually one of the, the members uh, that, um, attended the crime scene. Can you, for those that um, don't know about it or know very little, could you go through that case with us and what your role was? And Yeah, sure. Um, so back when he went missing, I think it was 2003, I think it was 2003, uh, in December, I remember I took a phone call from the scenes of crime officer um, and he had said to me, look, we've got a, a missing boy up here from the bus stop. We've got some tyre impressions on the ground, but other than that, there's nothing really... Uh, at the crime scene. And so, um, so you know, I guided him through saying, you know, take tyre impressions because Socos did that for us back then um, and then just talked him through other bits and pieces. And and so as time went on from there, you know, witnesses came forward and said, I saw a blue car. So police obviously working very hard, uh, looking for Daniel because he was a 13-year-old boy that had gone missing from the side of a highway um, on the way to the shopping centre. Now, the bus didn't stop to pick him up. The bus was full. Um, and since then, there's been a law to say that buses must stop to pick children up, no matter if they're full or whatever. Um, oh, okay. But, I wasn't aware uh, of that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm fairly certain that, that bus drivers now, or not necessarily a law, but there's something that bus drivers now must stop and pick up children if they're waiting for a bus, even if they're full. Um, there was a lot of oh, talk okay. around that at the time. Um, so if he had got on that bus, would things be different, um, that kind of thing? Because I think the bus did drive past him and he was standing there waiting for the bus at the time. Um, yes, I believe that's so, uh, so from Yeah, that's right. So from that, that day on, basically, we were given like every blue car that turned up, every pedophile in the area blue car was examined by me or my team that I worked with. Um, we examined numerous houses. Um, you know, like if stuff would turn up, dump somewhere, like say, oh, oh, what did I examine? Like Xbox, uh, little Game Boys or or whatever. You know, we were swapping for DNA to see whose Game Boy it was. Or, okay. You know, just anything. So, you know, I examined numerous, numerous cars, uh, numerous pedophiles, houses, um, what I actually did examine um, 
around Christmas time of the year Daniel went missing, 2003, was the offender's car. Unknown to us that he was the actual offender at the time. He uh, was a pedophile. Brett, Brett Peter Cowan was actually living up there with his wife at the time uh, in that area, like Glass House, well, in that area, um, Sunshine Coast area of um, Queensland. And so I actually examined his four-wheel drive at the time. Now, I actually took tape, this, which are big pieces of sticky tape of hairs and fibres that might be on the seats and on the floor. And touch DNA wasn't really a thing back in 2003. Um, yep. So touch DNA is, you know, very minute traces of DNA that we have in our technology to um, enhance and get DNA profiles from, particularly partial profiles and that kind of thing. Um, so I examined his car, didn't find any blood in the car, uh, took massive big tape lifts of any hairs and fibres that might be in the car, had a good look around the car, nothing of Daniel's was in the car. Um, so... Yeah, we just, he was just another car that we examined. Uh, as it turns out, it was actually, Daniel was actually in that car uh, willingly by the sounds mm. of it um, and driven to the location where he was uh, murdered. So um, that's sort of my involvement in that eight, I think it was eight years before between when he went missing and when he was found. Uh, when he was subsequently found through that police sting, um, that happened yeah. that everybody's sort of aware of. And there's a movie on Netflix that's sort of um, around that uh, and how the police caught him by that big operation. Uh, when they actually found him, I didn't actually go to the, to the scene itself where he was found. Um, one of my excellent um, friends uh, and colleagues, uh, Donna McGregor, who's our forensic osteologist, she actually went along to the scene and, and assisted with a few other um, forensic officers and the forensic coordinator um, to organise a search in that area. Um, now, floods had been through there um, and that sort of thing. He'd thrown his clothing into a creek. So, but miraculously, we found and Donna had identified some partial bones and we had, they'd also found some clothing. So some underpants, some shorts and some shoes. So my role at that stage of the investigation was to examine the underpants and the shorts. Yes. Um, yes. Now the underpants were Daniel's size. Uh, his parents, God love them, had saved a lot of Daniel's clothing and shoes. Um, so Daniel had a particular gait. And so the wear on his shoes, um, they were examined by another work colleague of mine, but the, the wear on the shoes was a telltale sign that they were Daniels and they had a forensic podiatrist to have a look at those. Um, but I did the, like I said, I did the um, underpants and the shorts and the underpants were basically just the waistband and a bit of the stitching left after eight years. Um, so they were the same right size, um, and I compared them to underpants that his parents had given me that they had kept of his, so Bond's underpants, I believe, um, and also some short, the remains of a pair of shorts, which were um, shorts that he had purchased himself with his debit card from City Beach or somewhere like that. And so City Beach or whoever, the detectives had got the actual drawings of these shorts um, the manufacturing design of the shorts with all the stitching and the buttons and everything 
And so what I did was I examined the remains of these shorts and they were exactly the same with the location of the buttons, the measurements and everything for that size of short. So I could say that they were, you know, such and such brand short size 32, whatever, blah, 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 um, yep, yep. and that they had been purchased with Daniel's um, debit card or whatever he had at the time. So hopefully my memory is 100% correct um, in that. Did uh, By examining what you believe to be Daniel's underpants and shorts, did that make you feel like eight years after he'd gone missing, did that affect you? Yeah, Look, it, it was just like I remember at the time the detectives, I had a good working relationship with a lot of the detectives and they were, Nick, we've got him. We've bloody got him. And they were, I think this that job had uh, broken a lot of people. It had seen a few people leave the job. Um for me, I was elated, absolutely yeah. elated. I bet you were, yeah, yeah. I could say and get to say in court later on, I do believe that these were Daniel's items of clothing um, along with the other things that we had examined that had come through. Um, so it was a very good moment and the fact when I went to court and I got to see Daniel's parents for the first time, and his dad winked at me when I gave evidence in the witness box. It was, oh, was very good for me because, yeah, God love him. Um, as if to say, you know, good work, Nick, like, thanks for that. So, it, yeah, it was like we bloody got him. Like this job had been, and it's, and it's not a job as such, you know, this is Daniel, this is his family, but this job had been with us for eight years and we just wanted a result his parents and the detectives and their elation at the time was contagious, I have to say. I bet, yeah. And, you know, that's why we we do what we do because of for those moments. This is why I did that job, yes, yes. Everything came together in the end. It's pretty incredible to think that eight years later that, the clothing is still uh, partially even able to be examined, isn't it? Like, and you said yes. they were they were in and a that we even found it. it. Yeah, and that we even found it because it was in a pine forest. Now, pine forest is quite. I can't remember now. Donna, my good friend Donna, would tell me this, and she did tell me this, but I can't remember. Yeah, the pine yeah. forest are acidic or alkaline, so that's no good for bones. And it's also uh, no good for clothing, that kind of stuff as well. So the fact that we found or that the searchers found, the SES and all the police that were there, did an amazing job to find these bits and pieces after floods had been through there, um, you know, all that kind of stuff is, is really a testament to how well they did their search, yeah. I think. Yeah. And the reason that the search was uh, conducted was because of, again, some brilliant police work in that they'd done yes, that. Uh, amazing. The Canadian uh, uh, covert policing method. Uh, yes. Yes. That, yeah, I don't, you know, it's funny, when I was at the rape squad, that had only mm-hmm. just come in, this um, covert policing method, mm-hmm. and we weren't allowed to tell anybody about it. But now pe- people understand 
not understand, they now know what it is, but it's basically about um, uh, pretending or befriending somebody who you think is, and help me here if I get this wrong, Nikki, but it's where you befriend as a police person or a, a, a um, undercover, you befriend who you think has done a crime and you and you become uh, great friends with them to the point where they begin to trust you. And this can take years to get that relationship to the point where they you start to talk about uh, crimes that you've done in the past. And this is how they got um, Bruce. What, what was his name? Bruce Cohen? Is, is, was that his name? The uh, offender? Oh, Brett, um, Brett, Brett Peter Cowan. Brett, Brett Cowan. And this Brett is Cowan, how they got yeah. Brett. Brett Cowan. Yeah, this is how they got Brett and to the point where he actually admitted to somebody uh, that he had done the crime and and they took him out there to where uh, he took this person, this undercover cop, out to where uh, he said, this is where I buried him and that's how they found him. Mm-hmm. And I can, I, I must have watched something a long time ago now, but I can still remember seeing uh, Brett come out of the woods with the with the undercover policeman and then there was this huge uh, arrest and, pardon me, but he, pardon me, but he knew he was fucked in. Oh, that was just... Yeah. <laughs> But but, yeah. but that was such a great, uh, oh, just all the police. Like I cannot imagine, that, as you talked about, the euphoria of getting him. Yes. Oh. Mm. Yes. And the elation. Yep. At, and uh, look, he, yeah. he had a really bad, yep, he had a really bad past history. Now, he had hurt a young boy and left him, I think, near dead. Um, somewhere, maybe Northern Territory, somewhere. His history was quite bad. So when the detectives had told me later on his criminal history, I was like, are you serious? And this guy was in the community. How does this happen? So, and again, we're seeing this again today where people are out in the community and horrible crimes are happening. Uh, That young woman that was walking home, a few years ago now and was murdered on her way home by a guy who was out on parole. Oh, yeah, um, that you know, was it's, it's um, still Jill that Mar. Was Jill Mar. No, that was, yep. that was here in Victoria in Brunswick, yep. uh, Brunswick Street. or Yeah, yep. uh, I, I won't say his name. I can't say his name. I know it, but I wouldn't no, say it. No, don't say but, his name. But, I don't, yeah. No, 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 but that's Jill Mar. And, uh, yeah, exactly, and he, he was out on parole uh, and, and that's what you're saying, but but, yeah. but can we go? Can we go back, Nikki? When so you go to the crime scene with Daniel Morecambe, and at the time you know that it's a, a young twelve year old. Uh, he hasn't come home. He was supposed to catch the bus. He never got on the bus. They found all this, found all this out. But all you had at the crime scene were some tire marks. Did they end up being uh, the offender's tire marks? Do you know? Uh, yeah, so looking back, no. So looking back, those uh, tire tracks were light truck, tire tracks. So they ended up being perhaps from a bus or from a truck or something that had stopped under the highway. So what, what the offender had done is there was a church, I think, behind where Daniel was catching the bus from or some kind of church or something and there was a car park and he had parked in the car park 
and had walked around to talk to Daniel uh, under the overpass. So his actual car didn't actually pull up from what I know in front of Daniel there. So um, there was one witness that did come forward and say that they saw this guy talking to Daniel standing against the um, overpass with his knee up. So you know how you stand against a wall or or something and you put your leg up, one leg up so your knee sticks out? Yeah. So he, that was what one witness had come forward and said. So um, when I, when uh, when Brett Peter Cowan was brought back to police headquarters um, after he was arrested for the murder of Daniel, the detectives got me to come downstairs to grab some cigarette butts in the car park. They let him have a smoke in the car park. And he was there. I got to see him then, which was great. Uh, He was standing up against the pylon, the cement pylon down there, smoking a cigarette with his leg up against the wall. And the detective said to me, yeah, and the detective said to me, see that? See that? So... Uh, so that all sort of came out as well. I think that was given in evidence as well. Um, and I think there's probably a photo that the photographer had come down and gotten photos of that as well, um, unbeknownst to him, I think, um, with his leg up against the wall, which probably didn't mean anything. But that was the way he stood. Um, Amazing. So, again, Amazing. that was something that had popped out. And the detectives would be able to fill you in more on all of that sort of stuff, but um, that's just little bits and pieces that I can recall. Mm. Oh, um, no, fascinating. that time. Oh, oh. Isn't it funny that you could almost do, do cartwheels watching the way somebody stands, but it's true. Yes. <laughs> <Isn't it? laughs> I know, or the way they walk or whatever. It's, yeah, yeah. it's crazy in the, world of, in the world of what you observe. So, yes. Oh, in the world of evidence, it's amazing. That's and right. so at that at that initial crime scene, well, where Daniel was taken, did you ever find any footprints of Daniel? Um, look, I didn't actually do the crime scene. We got to the Soco through that. Oh, that's right. Um, yeah. I, okay. Yeah, so I can't quite remember what else okay. he took from the crime. I, I do remember the Soco's name. Um, I can't quite remember what else he took. So um, it's funny how you can remember specific details about certain things and not others. Um, oh, no, oh, I couldn't agree more. Sometimes we have, and particularly when you've been uh, diagnosed with PTSD like we both have, you can remember some things as plain as day to the you know absolute minute detail and other things it's like, really? I don't remember that. Yeah, I, I, I get yeah. that. Do you, do you know right, like my friends will say to me, do you remember that? And I go, no, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, 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 so true. Do you remember if uh, when uh, the offender was uh, caught and arrested, obviously his car would have been impounded. Do you know if they event- ever did find anything in his car, evidence-wise? Okay, so, yeah, so his car I think had been sold and he might have even have moved into state. He did. I think they got him from Perth or somewhere, didn't they? I think they picked him up. But his car had been sold, so they tracked down to his car his car from somewhere and re-got it back in and re-examined it, but I don't believe anything was ever found in the car. So my evidence I gave in court in regards to the car was the fact that if you're willingly in somebody's car, you're not going to really leave anything behind. 
So, um, so if I, if you took me, if you dropped me home in your car, uh, I've got long hair and my hair falls out, so I might I might lose some long hair in your car. But generally speaking, we don't sort of shed. If there's no forcible contact or there's nothing happening for me to, you know, shed anything and I don't have any injuries, so I'm not going to leave any blood. So, uh, and this is what I said in court, was there's no, you know, if you're just giving me a lift in the car, I'm not really going to leave anything of myself behind. Maybe trace DNA, but that wasn't really a thing back then as such. Um, so... Yeah, so we did eventually. Now, this is the other thing. The tape lists were never looked at from the car initially. Um, the and what? Sorry, again, this is the, the Queensland. The tape, big tape list that I took from the car with the hairs and fibres on. Oh, yes. What yep. you would be looking would would be for any, obviously, head hair of Daniel with roots on it so you could get some DNA or um, speaking to a few of the forensic people who do hair examinations, the common shed hairs on a human body are arm hair and eyelashes. So, you know, you'd be looking for things like that um, because they're just things that can just generally fall out. Um, and they were never looked at at the time. Nikki, when um, arm hair falls out, for instance, and it hasn't been pulled out, is, is there... Uh, does it have a root so that you can get DNA from from that hair, or can you just get uh, DNA from the hair? Does, do you understand my question? Look, yeah. it's yes, I do. Yeah. So, look, um, sometimes in theory there could be some what they call sheath material around the end of the hair, where it's actually um, could be come out of the skin. Um, but technically speaking, there's not, but you can look at other aspects of the hair. So I think you can get mitochondrial DNA from hair, which is okay. hair yep. from your, your mother. Like it's your DNA that you inherit from your mother, maternal DNA. Um, so I guess, it, you know, I don't know, anything's possible. Um, some of the hair experts out there might know a bit more because I've been out of the game for eight years. But, um, yeah. So... Yeah, that's what they were sort of looking at. And you can look at colour and, you know, all that sort of stuff, but we didn't really have anything to compare them to because we didn't have Daniel's body, so we couldn't compare, I guess, hair. So you are looking for something where you can get a DNA profile from. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah, but they were eventually looked at and I think nothing of significance was found on those tape lifts, uh, DNA-wise, um, hair-wise. So the car was pretty dirty from my memory. Um, so it was like, you know, I had a lot of dirt on the surfaces and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, it would have picked up a lot of dirt and other bits and pieces. Dog hair, I think get had a dog. Um, there's a baby car seat in the back. Um, bits and pieces, so, um, yeah. Mm. Um, yeah, not surprised, to be honest. No, no, I... I've seen him and he, he just looked a, a fairly, oh, doesn't seem right to say it, but uh, he did look a, quite a dirty sort of unkempt yeah. man. Maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but. Um, no, he I, did. He did, yeah. 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 Um, Nikki, you're talking there about court and giving evidence in the witness box. Uh, 
sometimes scientific evidence is all that police have. So the defence will often uh, try and discredit you being the expert in some way, shape or form. Did that happen to you in this or has it happened to you in any in other cases? Uh, um, evidence that you've given in a court, I imagine yeah. you would be hammered at times. Yes, sometimes you do. Um, look, for this case, it was pretty It was pretty good. Um, I had great evidence to give in terms of the car, not that we found anything in the car, but in terms of the clothing, you know, I had done posters up and charts so that the jury could see, you know, the good points of comparison and all that kind of thing. So you know, just a little bit of the pie. There was all the other bits. So they weren't sort of focused on me too much. And I quite often found that uh, in this age of DNA, quite often the DNA, the people who gave the DNA evidence were the ones that would cop a bit of the hiding. Uh, I do remember very early on in my career copying a hiding about measurements, things that were not important. So um, I have written some measurements down of of like a height of a punching bag, for instance, from a floor, and I'd got down that it was approximately, say, 54 centimetres off the floor, for example. So then he hammered me about the word approximately and just on and on. um, Yeah, it was just really awkward. So they they tend to try and hammer you on little tiny bits of information to draw the jury's, I guess, eye away from the important stuff to say, well, how can you, how can I trust what you say about this other stuff if you're saying, oh, that's an approximate 54 centimetres? Like, what else is yeah. approximate, you know? Yeah. So yeah. Um, I don't have a clear memory of, of getting absolutely hammered, but I do remember getting some curly questions where I would say, I'm unsure about that, I'll have to look yeah. that up, those sorts of yeah. things, yeah. yeah. But from a defence point of view, that's what they're after. All they want is to put, take you or get you off your guard to make you then start questioning yourself and then from a jury's point of view, as you say, they look at you like, hmm, well, she's sort of, she's not really sure and you do think, well, if you're not sure about that, how can you be so sure about other things? That's what a human nature will, you know, and that's what the, the defence are trying to do, to just, discredit you or so make you look take like the focus a away from the good sometimes. bits yeah yes, take the yes. focus away from the important stuff to say mm. oh well the important stuff you could have bodged that as well so yeah yeah, yeah. it it seems it seems wrong to me mm-hmm. but it is a a technique that has it's been you know it's done done for yeah, yeah. It, it is, and it shouldn't be because it's about no. somebody's life. But, That's right. But they're, they've got a job to represent their, their client. So That's right. Personally, I don't know how you could ever be a defence no, lawyer. But, me neither. You know, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> it takes a certain kind of person, I think. Oh, I think you're right. Now, also, you said something about Daniel's parents. Are they the ones that you became uh, really close with or was that an, oh, no, that was another one that we're oh, going to talk about with Alison yes, Baden Clay. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah, but, but I yes, loved not that. Not so much close said, with, but I loved having a chat to uh, Alison's mother. Yeah. So that yeah, was a good defining yeah. point for me. Yeah, and we will get to that. But but uh, I love the story when you said that Daniel's father winked at you going into he the response. Was it going yeah. in or leaving? No, Which it was, was when it? I was giving evidence. It was when I was giving evidence and I was looking oh. straight at Brett Peter Cowan and I was making sure I was saying everything to him 
And yeah, he wouldn't yeah. look at me. He did not look at me. Um, um, but, uh, yeah, when I was giving evidence, I think I looked across to his parents at one stage, you know, when they're getting their papers ready or their whatever, and he, he gave me a wink. And I was like, okay, well, I know I know I'm doing okay oh. because he's given me a wink. So, yeah. yeah. Yes. Sometimes it's just those little things, you know. And, yeah. and to be honest, if if he would have been seen uh, to be winking at you, he, you know, he could have been asked to leave the court. I mean, those sort he of things been, you're, not yeah. supposed, you're not supposed to do. But I think it's just human nature, you know, and I think, oh, oh look, God it, love yeah, him, he yeah. just squeezed was, in that little wink. <laughs> that's right. And I think it was what I, I needed at the time because, yeah. you know, it's yeah. what, the hype surrounding this case and media presence and that kind of thing and, um, yeah, for him to, to say, yep, all right, thank you very much, I got you, yep, you're good. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it was just good. A, just a little sign. I feel I've got to apologise about the sound quality with Nikki, but I think you'll agree with me that it's worth trying to put aside because her story is just incredible. Next week, we talk about the fact that because Nikki wasn't exposed to grief, like that immediate grief with the family, etc., that was her saving grace. Uh, Nikki talks about Alison Baden-Clay and her involvement in being able to discredit Alison's husband's story. It is fascinating. Uh, She talks about the skeletons that come out of closets sometimes with investigations. She talks about her involvement in Alison Baden-Clay's post-mortem, her PM, and the fact that examining her clothing ended up being quite a major part of the evidence that finally convicted the husband, Gerald Baden-Clay, and just the nexus that Nikki found with some botanical material in Alison's hair. It really is an incredible background that we find out. Uh, we hear a bit about why Nikki left forensics the, and the job that she loved so much, how she sought an audience with the deputy commissioner and found out what had happened when he had actually brought in some psychs to try and help with the troubles that members were having. And just a bit about her new role and how she is so appreciated and the difference that it makes. And I suppose, and I also ask her about her proudest moments or moment in Queensland policing. And yeah, there's some pretty amazing stuff that we talk about. So uh, I hope you'll join us next week. Thank you so much. And again, apologies for the recording. But as I said, I think it's all worth it. Have a great week and we'll talk next week. See ya. As you've probably noticed, we've moved to a new platform called ACAST. I think that's the right expression, I've got no idea. And my previous reviews haven't transferred over. I need reviews. (laughs) Could you do me a favour and put up a review? And thank you so much for your support and patronage. With your help, I can give you that little bit extra. Thanks.
Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.